Well, amen. Thank you, Garrett. A good reminder to all of us about the immutability of Christ. Well, I'm going to ask you to take your Bible to the second chapter in Luke, and we are going to begin the first of three messages that are designed to get us to Christmas morning. So I want to begin an Advent series, a very small, brief Advent series with you uh, this week. And I want to begin by, by acknowledging something that probably has happened to, to every one of us. Have you ever received a gift, and when you opened up that gift, you looked at the gift, and you had two questions. <clears throat> what is it, and what am I supposed to do with this? Does that ever happen to you? Uh, that happened to me last year. My, uh, and it wasn't Christmas. It was for my birthday. My kids and uh, my dear wife took me out for a birthday dinner, and we went to this Mediterranean restaurant, which was really quite amazing. And, uh, and while we were there, they brought out this long box, about that long, and it was thin, and it was about that wide, and it was beautifully wrapped. And I just, you know, it was one, I, just, I thought, well, maybe it, it's not socks, unless those are like massive socks. So I was like, man, this is going to be kind of a cool gift. And when I opened the gift, this is what it was. And I, I just sat there at the restaurant, and I, it was laying beautifully in this little box. And I just lo- <laughs> looked at this thing, and I thought, what in the world is this? It didn't register to me that this was a poker. And then when I pulled it out, I started thinking, now what in the world am I going to do with this? And I started laughing and I started telling my kids, what were you guys thinking and getting me this poker? Because we don't have a wood fireplace. We have a little gas log fireplace and you don't use pokers in that unless you want to have trouble. And so I'm sitting there trying to figure out how in the world am I going to use this poker? And, uh, and my kids said, well, Dad, uh, you just got a fire pit, and you need a poker for your fire pit. And so this has become sort of like, uh, it went from being in my life sort of a dumb gift to one of the gifts that I really, I, I keep this in my office, I keep it out, and I, you know, I, I wield this in our home. <clears throat> So I want you to think for just a minute about this gift, all right? Let's say that in due time, uh, the thing that happens to all the people in the Bible happens to me, and I go the way of all flesh. I am, uh, I, I go into the presence of the Lord, and I leave my poker behind, and my kids reflect on how powerful this gift was, and they bury the poker with me in my casket, like this. I'm laying there. This poker is just across my... And, uh, and then 500 years later, somebody digs me up. And they see this poker. And they're trying to figure out, what is this poker that they buried me with? And they start sort of analyzing what it could be. This is a symbol of royalty. Or maybe this was what ancient cattle people used to use, um, and Pastor Sam's from Texas, and so maybe he didn't herd cattle. Maybe this was for herding cats, 
And this was what they used. And so they come up with all of these ideas about what a poker was. It's a symbol of leadership. It's a symbol of uh, whatever. And they come up with, and, and they have all of these ideas about a poker. Well, 2,000 years ago, God sent a Messiah. And we are still trying to figure out what to do with the Messiah. And that's what I want us to do as we kind of come into this Advent series is we normally ask questions like, who is the Messiah? And the scriptures are very clear about that. We know that he was the son of David. We know that he was the son of man, the son of Adam. And we also know that he was the son of God. The scriptures are very clear about the identity, the who Messiah was question. And we even know why he came. The text that we read together this morning um, really has to do with the mission that God sent him to accomplish. He, he came to redeem his people, to save his people from their sins. So if, if we were asking the question during this Advent season, who is the Messiah and what is his mission, why did he come, if we're asking the who and the why questions, most of us can answer those questions very easily. But what do we do with this Messiah? Why do we need one? And that's really the focus of this series that I want us to go through over the next three Sundays. What is a Messiah and why do we need one? You know this from your understanding of uh, the scriptures that 2,000 years ago that the angel that we read about appeared in the heaven over the fields of, uh, of Bethlehem, actually probably appeared right with them in the field and began talking to them. And by the time he was done talking, an entire angelic army had gathered with him. And the army was giving glory to God. The word hosts that we read in the text in Luke 2 is the word for army in, in Isaiah, for example, in Isaiah 9, uh, beginning in verse 7 and going through verse 8, we read about someone who is coming, a son who is given, and his name will be Wonderful Counselor. His name will be Mighty God. His name will be Everlasting Father. His name will be the Prince who brings peace. And then Isaiah says the government will be upon his shoulders, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And then there's this little interesting phrase at the end, the the zeal of the Lord of hosts will bring all of this about. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. How will this leader who brings peace actually receive the government of the entire world? And how will he receive a kingdom of which there will be no end? And Isaiah's answer is the zeal, the wrath, of the Lord God of armies will accomplish this. And thousands of years later, or hundreds of years later rather, here in the shepherd's field outside of Bethlehem, an army shows up. An angelic army shows up, and they announce to these shepherds that a Messiah has been born. God has given a gift to the world, and the world received a Messiah. The word Messiah is not really a word that we use 
uh, knowingly. We, we, we use it a lot. We often talk about Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, and we sometimes use that word Christ as though it were the last name or the surname of Jesus, or we think about it as sort of the biblical t- nickname that, that the Scriptures gave to Jesus, but actually that term is a title, and it is a royal title. It is the title of a long-anticipated, long-awaited individual who would come to fulfill one of the most significant and one of the most unbelievable missions that God ever entrusted to anybody in, uh, in the universe and in all of time. And if we're going to understand what this Messiah is, we're, we're going to have to ask a different set of questions. And so what I want to do this morning is I, I just want to ask and answer two questions. What is a Messiah and why do we need him? And then I want to make an application. So here's the first question. What is a Messiah. And we began reading in Luke chapter 2. And if you go back down to verse 11, for unto, unto you, that's us, is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Messiah. That's the word Christ. God sent to you, and if you go back to verse 10, it's not just to you Jews, it's to all people. There is a universal mission that this individual has. And the individual that we're talking about is a Christ. He is a Messiah. And so let me talk briefly about what that means. A Messiah in the Bible is a divine champion. He is someone who delivers. The word Savior in that text is the word that you and I would would use for deliver. We typically think of it as the kind of salvation that we get when we confess our sins. But in the Bible, that term Savior is, is what you would use for anybody who came to deliver anyone from trouble. Moses would have been a Savior for Israel in the times of Egypt. Uh, Joshua would have been a Savior, a Deliverer. In fact, Joshua's name actually means Jehovah saves. And so whoever this Messiah is, he is a Savior. He is a Deliverer. Jonah talked about this from his prayer at the bottom of the sea when he talks about deliverance belongs to the Lord. In other words, God is the one who chooses to deliver. The way he said it is salvation belongs to the Lord. And so we are looking at a champion who has come to deliver. This champion would be appointed by God the Father. I want you to see how every member of the Trinity is involved in this Messiah's ministry. He would be appointed by God the Father. Luke is going to bring this out in verse 34 and and verse 35. In the prayer that Simon prayed when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to the temple to dedicate him, or Simeon. Listen to what he says in verse 34. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed. He's appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And he looks right at Mary and he says to her, A sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This Messiah that God sent is an appointed champion. He's also anointed. 
The idea there is that he's consecrated to a unique ministry. In the Old Testament, you anointed in Israel certain key individuals at the start of their ministry. And it was the idea that they had an unusual calling from God to accomplish. And because they had this unusual calling from God, they could anticipate an unusual enablement from God. And so you would consecrate a priest to his ministry. You would consecrate a prophet to his ministry. You would consecrate a king to his ministry. And there are examples of all of these consecration ceremonies throughout Israel's history. This would not have been something with which an Israelite was unfamiliar. So this appointed champion, this Messiah, would also be anointed. Let me read you some places where you see this. In Isaiah 11, Isaiah says, let me, let me tell you a little more about the son that I told you would be given in chapter 7, and that would be this wonderful counselor, this mighty God, this everlasting father, this prince of peace. Let me tell you a little bit more about him. He will have an unusual ministry. He will be a person upon whom the Spirit of God rests. And in Isaiah 11, listen to how Isaiah talks about this champion. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And then about this individual, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see, nor will he decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor. He will decide with equity for the meek, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Now, Luke takes you all the way back to Isaiah 11 in chapter 3 when he describes the baptism of this Messiah that we're reading about in chapter 2. In Luke chapter 2, we read about this anointed deliverer, this champion who has been born And we fast forward in chapter 3 to when this anointed champion appears on the scene at 30 years of age. 30 years have passed between Luke 2 and Luke 3. And the first thing that Luke wants to tell you is that this champion was anointed by the Holy Spirit of God. This is what he says. Now, when all the people were baptized, Jesus also had been baptized and was praying. The heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, and this voice identifies who this person is that we're reading about. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And a few months later, this son that we just saw baptized in Luke chapter 3 goes into the synagogue at Nazareth, and he opens up Isaiah, and he reads this in Luke chapter 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captive, and to help the blind recover their sight, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So here is a champion that has been appointed by God, and now we are reading in Luke that he is anointed by the Holy Spirit. So God the Father and God the Spirit have come upon this individual, and now we are, we're going to see that he is acknowledged 
as the Son of God. In Luke chapter 1, verse 32, Luke says, He will be great, and He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to Him the throne of His father David. Luke chapter 1, verse 35, Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And in Matthew 27, 54, at his death, the centurion looks up at the one who has been crucified and he draws a conclusion. Truly, this one was the Son of God. And so when you think about what a Messiah is, he is a divine champion, an anointed, appointed deliverer, and he has a unique mission. He has a cosmic mission mission, and the mission is to bring shalom. Look at verse 14 of chapter 2. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, shalom. This champion that has been appointed by God and anointed by the Spirit and acknowledged to be God's own son has a unique mission, and the mission is to restore shalom to the earth, and he's going to do it through people with whom God is pleased. This mission is going to involve reversing an ancient curse. It's going to involve redeeming an ancient people, and it's going to involve removing an ancient enemy. He is going to bring shalom. He is going to restore the earth to the way it was at the end of the creation week after seven creative days, or six creative days rather, when God looked at everything that he had made and said, it is very good. And I just want to say this to you, it hasn't been good for a long time. It really hasn't. I mean, look at your life. Look, look, at, look at what you have experienced in the brief time you have been on this planet. I mean, you can resonate, can't you, with what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes that it is vanity living under the sun. There is an enigma to this. There is pain to this. There is brokenness. Solomon is actually going to explain why the world is like this. In chapter 1, verse 17, he's going to say, listen, the world is like this because pieces are broken and pieces are missing to the great puzzle that you're trying to put together. And that's why life under the sun is is vanity. That's why it's enigmatic. That's why it's broken. And all through the Old Testament, we have been reading about the coming of an anointed, appointed champion who's going to fix everything that sin broke. He is going to restore shalom by removing an ancient curse and redeeming an ancient people and removing an ancient enemy, and he's going to do it through a unique way. He's going to do this in a very unique way. He is going to do this through his death. And all the way back to Genesis 3.15, you sort of were drawn into this because as God looked at Eve and said, I'm going to use you to deliver the world that your husband broke, I'm going to use you, I'm going to bless you, and through you, a champion is going to come to fix what your husband broke when he sinned, then here's what's going to happen to that champion. He is going to crush the head of the serpent. Just two weeks ago, Pastor Ben preached an amazing sermon, and I hope if you haven't heard it, 
you'll go listen to it on the serpent being lifted up in the wilderness. And the way that serpent was defeated in the wilderness looked ahead to a time when one would bear the curse for us. A champion would come and he would deliver us by his obedient life and by his sacrificial death. And God would validate all of that. God would vindicate his son and validate all of that atonement and acknowledge that it was done by raising him up from the dead. But if you lived in Jesus' time, that is not what you expected Messiah to do. I mean, for centuries, actually for more than two millennium, you had been listening to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. You had been reading Moses. You had been hearing the prophets. And you had a set of expectations that Messiah would meet when he arrived. You had some deep longings that you wanted Messiah to satisfy. You had some anticipations that you expected Messiah to fulfill. And these were deeply rooted in your soul. When Messiah comes, here are the anticipations he is going to fulfill. Here are the longings we have that he is going to satisfy. And here are the expectations that he's going to meet. And they were very, very defined. And when Luke starts the story, he introduces you to an Old Testament character named John the Baptist who is the very last in a line of prophets. And he has an unusual role to to play. He has one task. And his task is to point out the person that all the Old Testament prophets have been predicting. He is to have an Elijah-like ministry. He is to point and he is to help you see the one who was to come. And one day he's baptizing in the River Jordan and he looks up as he's baptizing and here comes Jesus on the shores of that river and he takes his finger and he points to Jesus and he fulfills his ministry and he says, that one is God's own lamb. That one is the lamb God has sent. He is the lamb of God and his mission is to take away the sins of the world. Thirty years earlier, the angel army had appeared and they had announced the beginning of the final act of an ancient war. God was about to bring defeat to an ancient enemy. If you go all the way back to the servant songs in Isaiah, one of the things that God says about this servant that is going to accomplish all of this, he describes him as an arrow. You are a well-crafted arrow with a very finely polished shaft, and I have a mission that I'm going to use you for, and by the time we are done with this mission, I will have fired my arrow into the very heart of the matter, and this arrow will accomplish the end of an ancient war. And you see God take the arrow, the choice arrow, out of his quiver, and he fires it, And when you see it land, it lands right on a cross in Isaiah 53. And as you start reading through that passage, you begin to realize this is an immense thing that is happening. But 800 years later, if you lived in Israel 
and you're looking around, you can't wait for God to fire that arrow because when that arrow gets fired, everything is going to change. These Romans are going to be done. This Herod guy that's controlling all of Galilee, this, this dude is done. All of this poverty, all of this brokenness is going to be done. And you had expectations for Messiah. You had longings for Messiah. You had anticipations for Messiah. And John the Baptist, the last in the line of Old Testament prophets, points him out to you and says, that's the one. And you're like, yeah, it's about time. And you start listening to him talk, and he's an amazing teacher. I mean, wow, he can teach. And then you start watching what he does, and he's actually pretty good at miracles. He can, do, he can do a good job with that. I mean, he starts opening up people's eyes. He starts opening up people's ears. He starts healing people who are crippled. This leper guy comes up to him, and when he's done, the leper's not just healed, he's cleansed. This woman shows up with this issue of blood, and when, when Jesus is done with her, she's, 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 she's taken care of him. He's even able to raise the dead. Demons are not a big problem, so we have got the right guy. This is the right guy. You know, by the time you listen to Luke... And you get all the way through the first part of Luke, uh, you have been made privy to the supernatural events around his birth. You saw the Holy Spirit descend on him. He even went out in the wilderness, had a personal encounter with Satan. I mean, other than Adam and Job, there's been nobody else in the history of the human race that had a personal encounter with Satan. Here is Jesus, and he goes out, and he has this encounter with Satan, and he wins So we've got the right guy. But then he's not doing what we anticipated he would do. And John himself is languishing in a prison. And in Luke chapter 7, turn over, if you will, to Luke 7. And I want you to see this with your own eyes. In Luke chapter 7, this one who had been set apart by God to announce the coming of Messiah because of the unmet expectations has a question. And the question is, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? I can't imagine that question coming out of John's mouth. Are you the one who is to come? I mean, Jesus, you, you were, it was so clear to me uh, that day in the river that, that you really are the Lamb of God and, and you really have come to take away our troubles and to deliver us. But here I am, I am your closest associate and I am languishing in Herod's prison and it looks like I am headed for execution and you don't seem to be the least bit interested in deposing this Gentile king that's oppressing your people, and you don't seem to be the least bit in a hurry to deliver me from the prison cell where he put me. Are you the one, or should we start looking for another? I mean, John had expectations. John had longings. John had had anticipations, and here he is, and there's no doubt that, that Jesus is the one that God told him to announce But Jesus isn't doing what John needed him to do. 
Hey, it's great that you're taking away the sins of the world. That's awesome. And it's great you're raising dead people and healing sick people and open up the blind eyes and all that mess. That is awesome. But I need you to get me out of this prison cell. That's what I really need. And I'm glad that you're going to, you know, do all the things that the Old Testament prophet, these, you know, these four horns in Daniel 7 about that vision that Daniel had, and there are these four horns that are coming up, and then there's more horns, there's like ten horns, and I have no clue what that's about. I just need you to take care of this loudmouth over here named Herod. And you don't seem to be the least interested in dealing with Herod, and you don't seem to be the least bit concerned that I'm languishing here in this prison. What? kind of a Messiah are you and what use are you if you can't get me out of Herod's cell? And you say like, wow, John, that's, you don't ask that. Wait a second. Do we ask that in our life? I mean, how many times do we have anticipations and longings and expectations for Jesus? Hey, you know what? When I became a Christian, I expected Jesus to change everything. I had hoped he would fix my marriage. I really did. In fact, I worked hard on my marriage. And after I became a Christian, it got worse instead of better. I anticipated that if I made Messiah my Lord, that that my kids would turn out. I would have this great family. I, I anticipated that he would give me a safe life and a secure future. I anticipated that, that financially things would be different. I anticipated medically that things would be different for me. And I've spent my entire life as an adult following this Messiah, and I have expectations he didn't meet, I have anticipations he didn't fulfill, and I have longings he hasn't satisfied. And we would never say it quite the way John did. John is very transparent, but we would say it in our hearts, maybe there's another Messiah we need to go find. Maybe we need to go figure out how to get what we want that Jesus hasn't given us. And, and I would bet, just like there have been times in my life where I've had that question, there are times in your life where you've had that question. And that's what Luke is going to answer as we kind of wrap up our time. Let's just quickly look at the second question. Why do we need the kind of Messiah that Jesus was? I mean, Luke's already told us that he is a divine champion. He, he's an anointed, appointed, acknowledged champion who is the son of God who is going to deliver his people. And so I get that. But he doesn't seem to be delivering me, and so I'm not quite sure what to do with this Messiah gift. I realize that he was given to the world by God, but, but, but what in the world am I supposed to do and why do I need the kind of Messiah that doesn't deliver me from Herod's cell? By the way, you know the story of John. John didn't get delivered from that prison cell. He actually got executed. So why would God send the kind of Messiah that would leave a close associate like John languishing in a prison cell? Why would God send you a Messiah that would leave you languishing in the things you wish he would deliver you from? Why would he do that? And there are answers to that question that go like this. God sent you the kind of Messiah 
that he did because you need a better prophet than Moses. You need a better priest than Aaron, and you need a better king than David. And Luke is going to focus on Jesus being a better prophet. Let me show you two very quick things, and, uh, and then we'll make an application. And let's start by reading Moses. We're going to end up by seeing Jesus, but I want to start by reading Moses. Listen to what Moses said. Now think about it. Moses is this great prophet. He's the greatest prophet in Israel's history. Deuteronomy 34.10 says there has not arisen a prophet since Moses in all of Israel. There's not arisen a prophet like him whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt. In other words, in all of Israel's history, there never was a better prophet, a greater prophet than Moses. He was a trusted servant in God's house, Numbers 12. He delivered God's people, Exodus 1 through 15, with signs and wonders, Deuteronomy 34, who, met it, who mediated this marvelous, gracious covenant when he brought the, the law down from Mount Sinai in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. And these were gracious words that were to be the wisdom of Israel inside the nation. So there are no prophets like Moses. But Moses, as great as he was, could not make Israel listen. He could not make Israel see. He could not make Israel see what he saw, and he could not get Israel to hear what he heard. And the reason for this was internal. There was something that Moses, as great as he was, could not do. Listen to Deuteronomy 29 and and listen to how Moses talked about this to Israel at the end of his life. Now, he's led people for 40 years. He says this, These are the words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab. Verse 2, And Moses summoned Israel and said to them, You have seen, eyes, you have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt. What did you see? What he did to Pharaoh and to Pharaoh's servants and to Pharaoh's lands. The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and the great wonders. Now look at verse 4. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to see to hear. And Moses began to realize that I cannot give you what you need. I was able to give you a redemption. I delivered you from Egypt. I took you through the Red Sea. I brought manna down from heaven for you. I brought water from a rock. Obviously, God is doing this through Moses. I I did miracles in your presence. God vindicated me. But the one thing you need, I cannot do. I cannot help you see what I saw when I saw God. I cannot help you hear what I heard when I heard the voice of God. I cannot get you to embrace the beautiful, gracious words of life that he gave you in this covenant. And the reason is, I can't change your heart. I can't change your heart. But in Deuteronomy 18... Moses said this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and it is to him you shall listen. 
And in verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require. In other words, when this prophet arrives, Moses, you tell the people I'm going to send them a prophet, and that prophet is going to be like you, but he's going to be greater than you. And I'm going to put my words in his mouth, and you are to listen to him. We need a better prophet with a better covenant who can do things Moses could not do. And Luke starts to talk about Jesus. And you know what Jesus does? He opens people's eyes. You know what Jesus does? He opens people's ears. You know what Jesus does? He does what Elijah did. He raises a dead son, a widow's son, to life. This is not an accident. Elijah in the Old Testament raised a widow's son to life. And here is John the Baptist languishing in a prison cell. And he sends two friends to Jesus. And he wants to know, are you the one we have been expecting? And Jesus said, I want you to tell John something. I want you to go back to John. We've heard Moses. Let's see Jesus. This is what Jesus said in Luke chapter 7. Go and tell John what you have seen and what you have heard. Moses said to Israel, I can't get you to hear and I can't get you to see. And Jesus said, you have been hearing and you have been seeing. Here is a prophet that can do something Moses couldn't do. All of a sudden, people are hearing and people are seeing. What are they seeing and hearing? The blind receive their, their sight. The lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And John, blessed is the person who is not offended by me. Here is a greater prophet than Moses who would not just bring words down from a mountain. He was the truth. Jesus was the truth. He was the living word. And as that living word began to talk, all of a sudden something happened in the hearts of people that had been ordained to life. They began to hear like they had never heard before. They began to see like they had never seen before. And something began to rise up in a heart that had been quickened and awakened and enlivened. And by the time it was done, their old, dead, stony heart had been replaced by a new heart. And the law of God had been inscribed on it, just like James said. The implanted word had come into their life. And Jesus said, now go tell John, that's what's been going on. And while John languished in the prison cell of a little tiny ruler that ruled under the pleasure of Rome, Messiah, Jesus, had come to deliver his people from a far greater enemy. And while John was wondering, when are you going to get me out of this little cell that, that I'm in, Jesus was delivering people from a greater bondage than anything John was experiencing. And because God sent that kind of a Messiah, you and I are sitting here this morning, and we can listen to him. On the day he went up to the mountain just before his death and was transfigured, all three Gospels 
record something interesting. There were two times God spoke from heaven. One was at the baptism, and the other was at the transfiguration. And here's what he said when his son stood in the presence of the two greatest Old Testament prophets, Moses and Elijah, and here he is in the middle. The great prophet that is greater than Moses, who Elijah said would come, has finally arrived. And here's what God said to him. You listen to him. You listen to him. Let me ask you a question. Are you listening to him? I mean, are you really listening to him? I'm not talking about are you listening to sermons? I mean, are you listening to the voice of this prophet? Have you heard him say something like this? Come unto me, all you who are what? Weary? Are you weary? What are you going to do about the weariness? You say, well, I went to Jesus and it got worse. He didn't deliver me. He didn't fix it. He didn't, he didn't. Jesus said, listen to me. Listen. Come unto me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. I'm looking for relief. I don't care about the respite. I want relief. I want you to fix this. I want you to fix this cancer. I want you to fix this financial mess I got myself in. I want you to fix this kid I don't know what to do with. I thought you were going to help me overcome this sin, and I keep committing it. And no matter how hard I try and how many sticks I throw in the fire and how many little mantras I, I say, I still end up doing it again. And you're supposed to fix this. And Jesus said, I didn't come here just to fix you. I came to give you rest. You say, well, how am I going to get that rest? Well, that's why you need a better priest. And that's what we're going to find out next week. You can rest not just because you got a better prophet who can give you a better word from a better covenant. you got a better priest who can say, look, you need to sit and you just need to rest from all of this labor that you've heaped up on your life trying to please God and trying to please other people and trying to just do the next right thing. And we ought to do the next right thing. But sometimes it's so crushing. And Jesus said, listen, listen, listen to me. I know your preacher means well. I know your friend means well. I know all those people mean well. You need to listen to me. Come to me, and I will give you rest. Lord, thank you for this wonderful prophet that we didn't anticipate. Lord, it puts Moses in a whole new light. Lord, when you were on that mountain in the middle of the greatest Old Testament prophet and the one who would come to announce you, we never realized that you were that prophet. And the word that you gave brought a a much better redemption, a much better deliverance than Moses was able to deliver when he brought him out of Egypt. It brings a much greater bread, a, a much greater provision than even the bread that Moses was able to bring and the water that Moses was able to give. Lord, you, the prophet, have given us bread from heaven. You have given us wells of water that spring up in our lives. And Lord, so often we don't listen to you. We, we want to listen to everybody else. Everybody else has got an answer, a solution, a trick a verse that we need to memorize, a little band we need to put on our hand and tweak when we don't remember. And and Lord, we just need to come to you. And we just need to listen. And we just need to rest. And so, Lord, help us to do that. We thank you for the ministry of the word that your son, 
our Messiah, the perfect Messiah that we need, not that we want, that we need, came to give us. And so, Lord, help us, we pray, to embrace, to listen, and to rest. In Jesus' name, amen.